Poor Jim over here by himself. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going back to our old ways of everybody on this side, I, I can see. Um, we're going to talk tonight about religious liberty. So you have the freedom to sit on this side if you want. Uh, <laughs> I don't think that's exactly what it means, but you know, hey, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, we are going to talk about religious leader, liberty. Next week we won't have service uh, for Father's Day. Um, uh, so, so we won't have service next week. And then the following week we'll do the last article of the Baptist Faith and Message, which is the article on the family. Uh, that's the, that was actually... Um, so in the prior... There were two prior Baptist Faith and Messages. Uh, one was in 1925. Uh, that was the original. And then the, the updated one in 1963. In 2000, they updated it once again. And they took this amendment, which was a uh, 1998 resolution, and they put it into the Baptist Faith and Message on the family. So, so that one's a very recent addition. Uh, and, and you'll see... I mean, obviously, uh, when you look at our society and you look at the attacks on the family and, and what role family has to play and all of those kinds of things, you'll see why they added that in. But um, tonight, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about religious liberty. So religious liberty, uh, this is the Baptist hallmark, one of the three Baptist hallmarks. Uh, baptism of believers is one of our hallmarks. A second hallmark is uh, the the idea that we do ordinances and not sacraments. Uh, the, the third big uh, thing that really sets Baptists apart is religious liberty. If you ever thought that Baptists were always backwater behind the times, if you thought that Baptists were always the, the, the non-intellectual in the room that uh, uh, came around only after everybody else already had, you need to get to know the Baptists on the, uh, on the topic of religious liberty. We were centuries ahead of our time. So in the mid-18th century, uh, most of the philosophers began talking about this idea of religion being separate from the church, the church being separate from the state. Uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote uh, a wall of separation between church and state in a letter in the early 1800s. Uh, men like John Stuart Mill and David Hume and um, uh, Thomas Moore and folks like that had, had been writing about that kind of stuff for oh, about 40, 50, 60 years. Baptists have been preaching it since, well, basically the 1600s the early 1600s. Uh, ba uh, Baptists have always attached ourselves to religious liberty, and part of that was a survival mechanism, right? Because we were born out of areas where if you weren't part of the state church, you were a heretic. And typically heretics were punished by the state. If not killed by the state, then put in stockades and publicly humiliated and persecuted. And as one Baptist uh, astutely noted, uh, or Wait a minute, was it, was it a Baptist? It was one of the founding fathers. I, and I want to think that it, it was either Alexander Hamilton or James Madison. I can't remember which one. But one of them wrote that in politics as well as religion, uh, you don't make very many converts with the sword. <laughs> Basically saying that persecution doesn't win your case for you uh, if you go persecuting what someone else believes. So 
anyway, uh, so we were always kind of we were always kind of against the establishment of a church run by the state and a state run by the church. So it's no surprise that we pick up the idea of religious liberty. Let's see how the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message put it, and then we will look to Scripture because as great as the framers of Baptist Faith and Message may have been in wording this, uh, God is our ultimate source. So on religious liberty, God alone is the Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word, or are not contained in it. Church and state should be separate. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Civil government, being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed word of God. The church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. The state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. A free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men and the right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. All right, that right there is a sentence. That's one, that's a sentence you read. You don't just, you, you can't just hear it out loud and get, you gotta, you gotta actually look at it on paper. So what does it say? The biggest idea in our concept of religious liberty is not the fact that I can believe whatever I want to believe. That's not religious liberty. The biggest concept in religious liberty is who, or to whom, excuse me, am I accountable for what I believe? Because the fact of the matter is, liberty is always bounded. We never have complete liberty, and that's a good thing. I mean, have you seen people we can be really bad, really bad. And unfettered liberty only encourages the worst of humanity. So we need some kind of boundary. So religious liberty isn't the idea that I can just believe whatever I want to believe and you can't say anything about it. Religious liberty is the fact that I can choose what I believe about religious matters. But the key to this is the idea that man, is accountable to God alone for his beliefs. Man is not accountable to the state for his beliefs. Man is accountable to God alone. The Baptist Faith and Message bookends uh, uh, this within this article. The first sentence says, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. Let's talk about that for just a brief moment. God is the Lord of the conscience, and he's left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. In other words, if God has specifically commanded, then that sells it. So anything man says that contradicts his word, we're free. We're free from that. 
Because we serve a higher authority. And that higher authority has given us a different command. Let me use a a practical example. My kids come to me sometimes and they say, can I have this? And I give my favorite answer in the world, no. Do you know why I give no? Partly because I don't want to fool with it. Partly because I don't want to fool with them once they get it. But the biggest part is I don't want to contradict Carrie. In other words, I don't want to say yes when she has already said no. I want to make sure that she hasn't already said no. Because if I say yes and she said no, who are they going to follow? They're going to follow me. And then who's going to be in trouble? Me. I say that in a joking way, but in, in, there's, a, there's a reality to this that we can, we can try to search for the yes wherever we can get it. And so God says, don't do it. But then there's a law that says you can do it. And so we think, all right, well, then we're free to do it, right? No, because God said no. The higher authority takes precedent in, in a court of law. If there is a law on the books in a state, that says something. And there is a law in the United States within the Constitution that says something else. Which one takes precedent? I gave you a hint by where my hands were. The higher law. The Constitution takes precedent. So if a state says that um, you're not allowed to elect your representatives, well, that's in direct contradiction to the Constitution because the Constitution says we can. So there, take that. Right? The Constitution says this is how it works. The state law becomes invalidated because the higher law takes precedent. It's the same way here. God's laws are above men's laws. God's laws are above men's laws. Now, don't get me wrong here. There are often times that men's laws do not contradict God's laws. And then guess what? Then you kind of have to... But when they do... We're free. And, and that's an important distinction to make. Uh, that, that God is the Lord of the conscience. So when you're talking about religious matters, when you're talking about choosing to worship God in the way that you believe that he has instructed you to worship him, state has no business saying any, anything else. It doesn't matter what the state thinks its, its um, reasoning might be for, behind, for doing that. If God has said, this is what you are to do, and the state says, you are not allowed to do that, we follow the higher law. Now, if God says, you're not allowed to do this, and the state says, you must do this, we follow the higher law, right? But when God says nothing, and the state says, this is what you must do, there's no higher law. But when it comes to belief, we are commanded by God. Uh, the, the second part of the, the thing, before I forget this, because I will forget and I will just move right on past it and then be completely lost uh, up there because all of my notes are going in order, so I better follow them. A free church in the free state is the Christian ideal. That language comes from E.Y. Mullins. He talks about the idea of a free church in a free state, and what he says is that what that requires, what that, what that does is it means that the church does not come under undue influence from the state, and the state does not come under undue influence from the church. Uh, uh, He put it this way. This is, uh, the church, he says, is compatible with the state, 
but entirely independent of it. In other words, the two rarely will butt heads, but most of the time they're compatible with each other. You can be a part of the state and be a part of the church. There's not going to be a conflict of interest most of the time. When there is, the state's wrong. When, when God has said, and the state says something different, then the state is wrong, and, and that's where we have to go with there. But a free church and a free state allows these two entities to be separate from each other, but cooperate together because they both have a lot of ends that are the same. Both the church and the state want a society that functions well. Both of us, both church and state, we both want people to thrive. We both want people to live good lives. Now, as a church, we recognize that the best kind of life you can live is the more abundant life that Christ offers for those who follow him, right? We recognize that by following God's ways, we are putting ourselves in the right position. For the state, it's a matter of the welfare of the community. In fact, the preamble to the Constitution states several different mission statements. The reason for, to build this nation, they gave several different reasons. One of them was to promote the general welfare. You see, it's in the government's interest to promote the welfare of the entire community, not just of certain individuals, but of the entire community. So the church and the state aren't exactly butting heads on a lot of issues. Murder's bad. It's bad from a government standpoint. It's bad from a church standpoint. We can all agree murder is not good, right? So imagine, imagine someone who murders and who claims it is part of his religion. That doesn't jive, does it? No, it doesn't. So there are boundaries here, but a free church and a free state is the Christian ideal, and this implies the right of free and unhindered access to God on the part of all men. This means you don't have to go through a state-sponsored church to get access to God. In some places in the world, if you are not part of the established church of the state, then you are outside of God. You don't have access to Him. In some places, you have to go through a particular church in order to have access to God. Baptists and Americans, we know, no, no, the right way to do this, everyone gets free and unhindered access to God. By the way, why would government restrict that? Wouldn't that make them work a lot harder than they have to? I mean, really, a government that would say, you cannot go to God this way. I mean, doesn't that just make it harder on the government than it really needs to be? Anyway, that's just a practical thing there. The right to form and propagate opinions in the sphere of religion without interference by the civil power. In other words, you don't just have the right to believe, you have the right to believe and to proclaim what you believe. Now, you don't have the right to be uh, a jerk while you do that. That's, that's not part of it. But you do have the right to tell the truth. You do have a right to speak what you believe. You do have a right. All right, I better... I better keep moving because I'm on a I'm gonna be on a soapbox in a minute here. Man's accountable to God for what he believes. What I found interesting when I started looking at the scripture, a couple of passages came to mind, and it might surprise you to know this, but in ancient Israel, where the religion and the civil government were kind of wrapped up in one, I mean the Levites pretty much are the leaders. The high priest is pretty much the leader, 
of Israel, with the exception of the kingdom, when, when there's a king in place. The prophets are often judges as well. Samuel is a great example of this, where he is God's prophet, but he's also uh, the, the judge who is, who is leading the civil government. Even in the case of ancient Israel, you have situations where people are given a choice. Uh, one example that came to mind was in Joshua chapter 24. If you'll remember, this is the end of Joshua's tenure. He is about to die. Uh, uh, he has gathered Israel together. They've conquered most of the promised land, but not all of it because they haven't been fully obedient to God's word. But he gathers them together and he's telling them all that God has done for them. And, and everything that God has brought them through. And then he says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. He's calling them to serve God. However, this is not a government dictate. Listen to how he puts it. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods that your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. If, it, if it's wrong for you to serve God, choose who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We often focus there. But isn't it interesting that he gives them the choice? Now, it's not much of a choice. I mean, obviously, it's not evil to serve the Lord. He's basically made the case to them that they need to serve the Lord. But then he says, look, even if it's still... Even if you still don't want to, just choose someone. One of the problems that comes about is, is uh, especially when the prophets are around, that the people keep wanting to worship God, but then worship other gods too. That's what happens in 1 Kings. 1 Kings 17 tells us that the Israelites are serving God and then turning around and serving false gods too. They're worshiping both. It's like a back and forth. And so finally, to get on top of Mount Carmel, Elijah calls all these 450 prophets of Baal up there and he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Make the choice. God never gives us the okay to disobey him and to worship false gods. But he does but he does allow us the opportunity to make the choice. It happens in the New Testament too. I found it interesting. If you follow Jesus for in the Gospels and you just watch him, he's constantly offering to people but never forcing them to take it. Uh, John 1, 43, the next day. Sorry about that. Uh, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. He gives them the choice. Follow, follow me. They can choose. They can get up and follow. They can stay right where they are. Now some didn't follow him. Mark 10. Jesus looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. This is the guy that's saying, uh, uh, what must I do to be saved? To, to get into heaven and, and Jesus says well you follow all the commandments and do this and that and he says I've kept all of these since my youth what else do I lack this is this guy you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me you really want to know what you like sell everything you've got give it to the poor then follow me but he didn't disheartened by the saying Mark says he went away sorrowful for he had 
great possessions. For Peter, for Peter, the call came right at the beginning, but it also came back at the end. Remember, he denied Jesus three times. And so Jesus is sitting there and, and he says, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And on the third time, Peter is, is kind of distraught. He says, Lord, you know that I love you. He says, feed my sheep. And he's, he's talking about the kind of death that he's going to die. And after saying this to him, after saying this, he said to him, follow me. They constantly have the choice to follow Christ. In Acts, the disciples are facing this dilemma where the state the religious leaders, and this is a religion versus a religion. This is religious liberty from another religion in this scenario because it's, it's the Sanhedrin. They've been told not to preach Christ. So what do they do? They preach Christ anyway, right? And so they're put in jail. So an angel comes along and says, hey, put on your clothes. We're getting out of here. They get out of there. They go to the temple to preach the next morning. The folks in the jail can't find prisoners in the morning. All the doors are locked. They don't know what happened. And so they finally, they go and they tell uh, some of the priests and then someone says, hey, those guys you locked up yesterday, they're preaching in the temple. So they go, they get them, they kind of coerce them away because they don't want to, they don't want to set off the people for doing this. I mean, you know, you know, this is, these guys are sometimes too smart for their own good. But anyway, they bring them before the Sanhedrin and they say, the, the high priest, uh, here we go. They sent him before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. We told you to shut up and you ain't shutting up. Y'all are smiling. You know what comes next. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God. Rather than men, this is the same Peter that denied Jesus. Now won't won't shut up about him, and in fact, it's the same Peter. Uh, just a couple of verses later, same chapter. And when they um, later on they go and they preach, uh, so so they send these guys out of the room to conference among themselves. And Gamaliel is is listening to the debate on whether they should kill these guys or not. And he says, "Hey, wait, 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 just a second. You remember these other guys that rose up and said they were somebody?" and then they were killed or they were captured and all went to nothing. He said, don't worry about these guys. If it's of man, it won't succeed. And if it's of God, well, you don't want to be found fighting God, so just leave them alone. So they follow his advice. Verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And that was the end of that, right? Nope. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. <laughs> they still won't shut up. Now it's even worse. They're going house to house. You had them confined in one place. Now they're going all over the city. <laughs> this, this is what civil disobedience looks like. That Peter the one who denied Jesus, that now won't shut up about Jesus. He went on later to write in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised, but rejoice. Insofar, sorry, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. For if you are insulted for the name of Christ, 
You are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. It's that same Peter who once said, I don't know who that is, who then who then just tells everybody no matter what happens. So, and then he's sharing with others, look, if you're suffering because of Jesus, it's a blessing. He learned that firsthand. Then a few verses later, same chapter, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, religious liberty is not so much about you can't tell me what to think as much as it is about God has commanded me and I must follow him. We are responsible, we are accountable to God alone for what we believe and for what we do. Usually, though, when we talk about religious liberty, we talk about government in the church and, and how those two interact. So let's look at that for just a moment. What? There's some accountability on these levels, too. And guess what? They're accountable to the same God. So individually, we're accountable to God for what we believe. Corporately, we're accountable to God, too. For government, government is accountable to God. Sorry, I'm skipping 1 Peter 3. Government is accountable to God alone to protect religious liberty. Government is not accountable to the church. Let's, let's, let's make that very clear. We are not saying that the church ought to run the government. Now, it'd be great if we could get some great church folks, some folks who love Jesus in government, and, and, and using that platform as a means of encouraging righteousness in our communities. That'd be absolutely wonderful. We need to do that. But ultimately, government isn't accountable to the church. It's not even accountable to the voters. It's accountable to God. Now, sometimes God uses voters to exercise some of that accountability. That's a good thing. That's a blessing for us as voters, with or without being in the church. That's still a blessing, but it's accountable to God. Ultimately, the, those in authority will be accountable to God to what they do with their authority. And in government's role, they are accountable to protect men's ability to have free and uninhibited access to God. Baptist faith, the message says it this way. Church and state should be separate. I, I used to hear people thinking that they, they shouldn't have gotten rid of the Bible in public schools. I'm going to ask you a question. Knowing some of the public school teachers, do you really want them teaching kids about God? I'm going to tell you, there are some that I do not want teaching kids about God. Now, there are others that I would absolutely love for them to teach about God. But we got to be really careful on that. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. In providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. All Baptists want is a level playing field. We don't need you to support us more than anybody else. In fact, we don't even want you to support us. We just don't want you to support anybody else either. We don't want you saying, well, this denomination gets lots and lots and lots of funding and lots and lots of government perks, but this denomination over here doesn't. We don't want you saying that this religious group is protected and they get certain, uh, they get tax exemptions and they get certain benefits, but this other religious group right here isn't protected, so they don't get any of that stuff. We don't want any of that. If you're going to give tax exemption, give tax exemption across the board. If you're not, don't to anybody. Just make it level. Make it an even playing field. That's the biggest thing we're asking for. You know why we ask for that? 
because we're confident that God is big enough that he can handle himself. In fact, we know God will handle himself even when all of the stakes are against him. He'll still come out victorious. Imagine how much easier it'll be with a level playing field. That's all we want. They go on to say, the state has no right to impose penalties for religious opinions of any kind. That means if somebody doesn't agree with you, they shouldn't be fined, they shouldn't be jailed, they shouldn't be in any way mistreated or treated differently just because of that belief. Now, if you believe you should murder people and you go murdering people, that's a little different because it's not just a belief now, is it? No. The state has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. Notice what that does not say. That does not say the state has no right to impose taxes on any religion. It says it has no right to impose taxes for the support of any form of religion. So in some places, you pay taxes, part of it supports the state church. We don't want that. Not even if we are the ones receiving the checks. We don't want that. That's why I think it's dangerous for churches in general to accept government funds at all. It's getting a little too close for comfort. That's why I also... uh, I think we should be very careful about how we lobby for legislation. If we are simply making individuals uh, in Congress or, or, you know, whatever, whatever level it happens to be, if we're making um, the folks that represent us aware of issues and where we stand, that's one thing. But if we're whining and dining them and trying to buy votes, that's not right either. Government's accountable to God and they're accountable to God. Now, I couldn't find any scripture that directly related this. There are scriptures that talk about people who are in authority exercising that authority under God. But there's nothing that says, well, government should be protecting religious liberty. That's not, that's not in the Bible. That is an outgrowth of biblical doctrine. It's one of those cases where it's like the Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but the concept's there. It's just not, it's just not black and white. You know, the word's not there. You just have to read carefully to find it. And and this is true here as well. It goes on to say, a free church in the free state is the Christian ideal. And and I know we read this um, a minute ago, but I I just want to point out free church in a free state, that's the Christian ideal. Not a Christian church in a free state. Not a Christian church in a Christian state. Not a free church in a Christian state. It's a free church in a free state. Why? Because it allows men to find God. It doesn't get in their way. And I believe my God, I believe my God can handle any of the challenges that men may seek to bring against him. So, government's accountable to God for protecting religious liberty. What about the church? The church is accountable to God alone for its obedience to proper authority, just as the government should not impose itself over God, but is accountable to God. The church should not impose itself over government. It is accountable to God. And our accountability is in obedience to authority. Does that mean we blindly follow everything the state says? No. Test it. Examine it. Know the word of God. Look at the law and see where the two happen to coalesce. And that's a definite follow. Where do they touch on completely different topics? Where Where is it that God doesn't really say anything about this? And the principles of Scripture don't necessarily disagree with this. That's an area where we need to obey. But an area where there's direct conflict, 
If a government wants to tell me that I have to do something or have to believe something or have to ascribe to something or have to approve of something that God has not, that's not proper authority. Government has its limits, but the church is not the military to fight the government. The church is responsible to God for how we handle our relationship with that authority. Now, in our country, we got a little more liberty than some do. In our country, we can be part of the government. In our country, we can go run for office, take office and and put into practice things that we feel, laws that we feel like are good laws, laws that align with Scripture. We can do that. In our country, we can vote for people that we think are against the laws that God has said. But ultimately, God is going to hold us accountable for how we deal with proper authority whether or not we're obedient to it. Civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed word of God. If we know that God has commanded otherwise, we must disobey the state. But if we don't know that God has commanded otherwise, the impetus then becomes on us to obey until we can settle in our minds that this is not of God. One of, the, one of the issues that happened last year with COVID restrictions, they were calling for places to shut down. We shut down for a couple of weeks. We decided that because we didn't know the particulars of this, we didn't know exactly what was going on, we didn't know um, all the details, we felt like our government authorities were not haphazardly just trying to kill the church or trying to make us disobey God, we felt like they were trying to be responsible in their duties and we agreed that it it was okay to shut down for a little while. I soon became convinced, however, that that little while, that there was something missing. And as I prayed and I thought through it and as I sought God's will, I said, you know, Lord, meeting together is important to you. You've commanded it of us. Perhaps there's a way we can meet together. That's why we started the outside stuff. We bought ourselves a radio transmitter so you wouldn't have to keep your windows rolled down when it was starting to get hot. You can keep your windows rolled up and the the AC blowing if you wanted to. We we did some things and we we juggled some things around and we tried to find ways to do this. And and when when restriction as restrictions were being lifted and as as there were some people allowed in the building we we started making plans for it we had we had the fellowship hall ready to go had there been 11 people we would have put someone in the fellowship hall just to make sure we tried to do what we could do so that we could both weigh out the public health issue with god's commandment on the church perhaps we did it not as good as we could have perhaps we slid a little bit further away from God's law than we should have. Perhaps we perhaps we didn't give the state enough deference and we should have been a little stronger. I don't know. Thank God for grace. But, but we were trying to navigate that difference in such a way that we weren't dishonoring the state, but also we were honoring God's laws too. And I don't know. God, will, God has so far given me a piece about that that I handled it in a reasonable way. Maybe maybe not perfect, but reasonable. It's our duty, when God hasn't commanded otherwise, to defer to the proper authority. That being said, the church should not resort to the civil power to carry on its work. 
I can't make government do my bidding so that my church can do well, so that our church can do well, so that God's church even can do well. Now, I've got means of, of trying to affect the outcome, voting for certain candidates and and telling them what I think and going through the process. There are processes for that, but ultimately I can't demand that the civil authorities enact what I think is in the church's best interest. Again, church and state cooperate, but we're separate. Okay? And then they say this, and I'm so glad the gospel keeps entering in this conversation. Throughout the Baptist faith, the message, have you, have you noticed how, how the gospel is worked into almost every single article? Have you noticed that just about every article of the Baptist faith, the message talks about the gospel? I wonder why. I wonder if, if that might not be important to us, huh? The gospel of Christ contemplates spiritual means alone for the pursuit of its ends. This isn't a let's get a crusade together and let's go take Jerusalem away from the Muslims. No, that's not, that's not the gospel talking. We do things by God's ways. There's a lot of scripture that tells us to be obedient to authority when it's properly exercised. Romans 13 is one of them. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. I'll, by the way, in case there's any question, verse 2. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. So just when you thought, well, you know, God's not really serious about this obeying authority. No, he is. He is very serious about it. Uh, beyond Romans 13, though, there's other places as well. Okay, where is it? Now it's going to go like seven forward or something. I'm sorry, y'all. This thing I found out has a range of 65 feet, and it's about 65 feet from here to there. So we are right on the tip of it. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Philippians 3. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of America, and it's wonderful. It's a great country. We could be better. We could be a lot worse, too. But ultimately, our citizenship here is temporary. We're here on visas compared to the eternity of our citizenship in heaven. So we need to act like citizens of heaven. And while we're here, be thankful for the liberties we have, but remember that we're accountable to how we use them, accountable to God. Pray with me. Father, help us not get into the trap of thinking that it's a free country so we can do whatever we want. Because your word doesn't say that. No, your word tells us that we're accountable to you. We are citizens of heaven. God, while we're here on earth, may we be good citizens of America, good citizens of Alabama, good citizens of Prattville or Millbrook or Deetsville or whatever town we happen to call home. Help us be good citizens here as we enjoy the liberty of worshiping you in a free country. Free not in the sense that we can do whatever we want, but free in the sense that we're able to worship you openly. We're able to tell others about you boldly. We're able to live your commands daily. Help us never take that for granted. And help us be careful to do those things as you have commanded us to do. Father, thank you for the liberty we have. May we use it for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.